Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And this week, we are also joined by a special guest, the Archbishop of San Francisco, California, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni. Archbishop, obviously with a name like that, I mean, where I want to start is, obviously your parents are Scottish. Is that is that right? <laughs> yeah. How'd you guess? Scottish and Norwegian, yeah. <laughs> but you're, I mean, I, I know you grew up in San Diego, and I, I, at least from what I could tell, your, your father was a crab fisherman? My grandfather. So my father's side of the family were uh, fishermen. My paternal side immigrated from a fishing village in Sicily. And he actually, uh, they married my grandmother in Sicily. They first actually came to San Francisco and stayed here for about 10 years before he moved south to San Diego, where he could keep fishing, but in a warmer, drier climate. Here in San Francisco, he's a crab fisherman. That's, you know, the big fishing industry here. Um, then he moved down to San Diego. And then my father and his three brothers all grew up in the fishing industry down in San Diego. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. So Tell us just a little bit. I mean, you're on because we want to talk to you about your recent pastoral letter and kind of what's going on with this whole question of Eucharistic coherence, as it were. But since we have you, I mean, tell us a little bit about your your vocation. So you grew up there in in San Diego, and um, I think next year you'll be, what, 40 years of priest and 20 years of bishop. Is that right? Yes, you you did your homework. I did, indeed. I wanted to show off that I did my homework. So just, I mean, tell us a little bit about your vocation. Well, I grew up in San Diego. Uh, my father was, uh, as I said, a commercial fisherman when I was growing up. It was there was it was a center of the tuna fleet back in those years. This is I'm talking. I grew up in the the sixties and into the seventies. Um, so he had a tuna boat, and uh, I would uh, it was, but he he was fish for albacore, so that was seasonal. So he fishing season was like May through September, and then um, the off season he had a job. Uh, on the bay. So he'd get his boat ready, you know, in the springtime. And I'd ride down with him when he's getting his boat ready. And it was big. San Diego's a big Navy town. And I saw that Navy there. And I, I always had a desire to give my life to serving a cause greater than myself. So that kind of got into my imagination. And I thought maybe I would like to have a, a career serving my country uh, in the Navy or some form of military service or something like that. Uh, but then I my faith was always important to me, though I wasn't thinking about being a priest when I was growing up in elementary school and high school, but I always did practice my faith. It always was important to me. And then toward the end of high school, I started getting more spiritually serious and um, thought that maybe God was calling me to this as I was discerning the call in my first year of college. And there was a young priest at my parish who was kind of inspired the spark of a vocation. And I got out the nerve to talk to him about it. He sent me to a discernment retreat at the local seminary we had there and uh, I got to know the seminarians and the life of the seminary. And uh, I realized I needed to at least, uh, I at least had to test the call. So that's when I entered the seminary in my sophomore year of college. And, uh, you know, after a few years, I was, that was, those were years of discerning, but uh, things seemed to resonate for me. I seemed to um, respond well to the seminary life and, uh, so that came to the conclusion that I was calling me to this life. And, and you went to, the, it, it seems to me that you went to the NAC. So even if you didn't know it, somebody had in mind that you were being considered for the transitional presbyterate, as it were. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I did my philosophy studies at USD down in San Diego, where the diocese has its, its college level seminary. 
we didn't have a, a theology school, a theologate uh, by the time I entered. So we were, diocese was sending them elsewhere. Okay. We had to put down a number of options. I put down the options and they, they did send me there. Oh, that's, uh, that's neat. And, and then you worked, I mean, so, you know, um, Ed and I are both canonists, as you probably know, or maybe you don't know, but Ed and I are both canonists, although neither of us worked at the Signatura. So that, I mean, you had some pretty interesting experiences kind of in, in that vein. I've had a lot of varied experiences in my life as a priest. Uh, after I was ordained, I was stationed in a parish that was neighboring to the parish I grew up in. And I grew up on this that side of the parish that was close to the, in fact, for a while, my family was going to this parish where I got assigned to. So it was familiar territory for me. It was, it was a great parish experience. I had a, a good pastor who was kind of implicitly mentoring me well, a good, active, vibrant community there, had a school. So I had a good first experience. Uh, I was ordained in 1982, as you said, next year would be 40 years. The new, I still call it the new, <laughs> Code of Canada was promulgated in 1983. So I was one of those priests that was sent to study canon law after the promulgation of the revised code. So I was back in Rome from 85 to 89 doing the doctoral degree in canon law. And I did a specialization course in jurisprudence because I knew they were preparing me for the tribunal. Ended up doing only two years of work for the diocese, though, um, tribunal and bishop secretary, a few other duties. When a parish opened up that they didn't have anyone to send to, this was a parish in Calexico, California. So it's it's right on the Mexican border, not in the San Diego area, it's inland toward Arizona and the Imperial Valley. And I did speak some Spanish, so I ended up going there. So I was pastor there for four years from 95, take that back, 91 to 95. Then in 95 is when I got the call to go work in the Signatura. Yeah. And then after that, you became a bishop in 2002. And what has been important to you? I mean, first you were auxiliary in San Diego, and then you went to Oakland and then to San Francisco. And those have been, I'm sure, varied experiences. We can talk a little bit more about that if you want. But what has just been important to you in your ministry as a bishop? Well, prayer has to be at the heart of it. That commitment to the holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament, the consistency with that really hit me during those years I was working at the uh, Signatura. I mean, in addition to doing curial work, I I was working with some very fine priests who gave me a very good priestly example, and I, I realized that the importance of the consistency of that. So I made that commitment uh, to one hour before the Blessed Sacrament every day. And uh, I think that's what's sustained me all these years. So prayer has to be at the heart of it. And then... Um, to be, we're called to be spiritual fathers. So give fatherly care for God's people, which means sacrificial love, uh, especially with our time and our presence. Uh, it, it, it occurs to me over and over just how important presence is. Just being present to people means so much to them. So to make ourselves uh, available in that way to, so we can be present to our people and, and uh, nourish them spiritually with the the solid food of, of sound doctrine and, and the truth that Christ has revealed to us. Archbishop, something I'm always, um, and JD and I have talked about this before, uh, it, it seems like more and more priests, um, at least from what we're hearing, are saying no when they're asked to become bishops. And this is one of the reasons why we've got sort of, you know, a rolling um, line of vacancies, particularly in this country. And they're, 
there seems to be the the sort of um, everyone who works in the church sort of knows the minority at both extremes, the priests who sort of are waiting for the call and those who would never, ever consider saying yes if they were called. But it seems to me there has to be a sort of middle, which presumably most priests who are asked to become bishops are in, which is to be both surprised by the call and willing to say yes to it. But can you can you say something about like what is it like to get that call? How do you react to that? There, I would imagine there's a lot of internal conflict between thinking this is what I'm being asked to do, and at the same time thinking, well, am I up to it? And how do you reconcile that internal dialogue? Oh, I remember it so well. <laughs> <laughs> I found out I was named a bishop the June twenty something two thousand two. If you recall what was going on, yeah, geez, yeah, at that time, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was within two weeks after the Dallas meeting, yeah, where they passed the Dallas Charter. So it was the, you know, I, I think I was the first bishop named in the country after that. Meeting. Wow. And so I was working at the Signature at the time. I was home on vacation. I, the typical process is the nuncio would call the priest who's named a bishop to deliver the news, but. Instead, I got a call from my own bishop. I, had, I would always pay him a visit when I was home on vacation, but he said I, we couldn't wait. I had to come in immediately. And I, what I surmise happened was they couldn't track me down, so they called the bishop and asked mm-hmm. to deliver the news to me. So, yeah, it, it came as a shock. <laughs> it certainly did. Uh, but I've always taken the position of obedience, and I've never sought any job in the church. And I've never declined to do anything I've been asked to do. So I took it in that spirit. Yeah. You've been asked, you've been asked to do some, for, to take some tough gigs and especially to be Archbishop of San Francisco. I mean, you know, San Francisco is, um, is a, is, is a difficult town, I think probably for uh, the practice of the faith. And you have had in your tenure there a number of challenges, right? I think it was right after you got there that you had the whole thing with the teachers and um, and questions about sort of Catholic identity and the teacher's contract. And, and since then, you know, there have been other challenges, but there's also just the sort of basic pastoral challenge of the proclamation of the gospel in a place that is um, has probably secularized more quickly than than a lot of other parts of our country. How do you address that as a bishop? How do you perceive sort of a diocese that is in, in many ways a, a, a missionary diocese or sort of where, where evangelization um, seems to be all the more pressing. As I say, there are actually many San Franciscos. So there's the one that people think of, uh, hyper-secularized. Uh, and uh, that is, I mean, that's that's kind of a dominating feature of the city, but it's also a city of immigrants. Mm-hmm. The early waves of immigration from especially Ireland and in, in Italy, um, you know, back when they were immigrating, when my grandfather came here, uh, early 20th century, uh, who really built up the infrastructure of the city, especially through the orders of nuns and through the church life of schools and hospitals and social ministries and then, then the grooming leadership and the city's infrastructure and politics, police, fire, and so forth. And uh, there are still many like multi-generational Catholic families here in San Francisco who come from that lineage when San Francisco was very Catholic because of the predominance of Irish and Italian immigrants, others as well, French and German immigrants. Uh, More recently, more recently meaning in the last several decades, uh, lots of immigration from from Latin America, Mexico and Central America, especially, uh, who bring, you know, a very vibrant faith, a more 
kind of um, traditional devotional sort of a life. Um, they, they come from what still are basically Catholic cultures. They, they enrich the life of the archdiocese a lot. A lot of immigration from Asia, obviously. We have a very large Filipino population here who are very, they're mostly very active in their faith. Presence of other Asians as well, Vietnam, Korea, lots of Chinese here. And I read a statistic a few years ago in the city of San Francisco itself, the percentage of Chinese is about 23%. Now, most of those are not Catholic, but some are. Yeah. Uh, so very large Asian presence. And, you know, they bring another cultural richness um, that um, enhances the life of the archdiocese. Uh, so, and the one, in fact, the Chinese immigration has been the one constant from the beginning to the present is yeah. immigration from China. So there's this immigrant San Francisco as well. And it's kind of changing into a new phase now becoming the tech center. There's Silicon Valley nearby. A lot of tech industries are located here in San Francisco. A lot of people who work in the tech industry, especially younger unmarried people live in San Francisco and either work here or commute down to the Silicon Valley. So there's kind of this tech revolution. That's also another, another wrinkle. So there are many San Francisco's, but um, yes, I have to admit kind of that the, the secular mindset is a dominating feature, but there are also a lot of people with, with sound faith and, and, and good values so more than people realize that are um, giving good witness. Even before the pandemic, that, tech transformation has led to San Francisco becoming this place with just this extraordinary gap between um, the rich people who work in, in technology and then the, the poor of the city and the homeless of the city. And in some ways, it seems you have, you're sort of in the middle, sort of trying to bridge that gap or catalyze charity for the poor of your archdiocese. How, how does that, how's, how's that going? It's very troubling. You're, you're, you're correct. Um, there's very wealthy and very poor. The only middle class people left living in San Francisco are ones who have kept their family homes in the family mm. because it'd be impossible for a middle class family to purchase a home in San Francisco, even the wider Bay Area. Yeah. So that is very troubling. I'm actually in the middle, even geographically, <laughs> where I live next to the cathedral. If you go in one direction, the, the Tenderloin district is the very poor, I mean, a lot of homeless drug trafficking and all, all those, the disintegration of social life is there. But then if you go in another direction, you go to more upscale neighborhoods with beautiful homes. And so I see, I see the contrast with my own eyes. Uh, and I think, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, uh, but certainly one of the primary ones that we know from more than 50 years of social science research is the family fragmentation. You know, the families are broken up. The, no father is around. Uh, that's one of the primary factors that cause and trap cause poverty and trap people in poverty. And then all the other social ills of youth violence, school dropout, incarceration, and so forth. So uh, we really need to reclaim an ethic of family unity and cohesion and good sound education. That would be the other pillar for. Um, for addressing kind of the root problems of what we're experiencing now. So if those are the baseline challenges, which are formidable and, and um, I think which, I've, which you've articulated well, I, I was thinking about the last year for you. So in the last year, you have had the Junipero Serra statue um, things, which you have sort of been at the forefront of the sort of uh, 
destruction of those statues. And I know there was one Golden Gate Park. And then you um, were at the forefront of a movement to kind of push back on mass restrictions that you felt were onerous, both in, in the state of California and then in, in, in San Francisco um, proper. And more recently, you've been speaking out against kind of a spate of uh, violence against um, people of Asian extraction in your diocese. So those are like all the things on your plate. And, you know, that's with all due respect, Excellency, that's a hell of a year. And it struck me as kind of surprising that that would be the time in which you would release this pastoral letter that that came that just came out about both abortion and about sort of the um, relationship of uh, of all Catholics to working to end abortion, but especially the issues with pro-choice Catholic politicians and abortion. Why now? So you, you had this pastoral letter before I formed you in the womb. I knew you come out with all this other stuff on your plate. Why now? Why, why was this the time? had this on my mind for a long time, a very long time, uh, trying to think, how can I, how can I, what can I do to help our people understand these very critical issues? And I decided some time ago that uh, a teaching document such as this pastoral letter was the way to go because if people don't understand, so many Catholics don't understand what it means to receive Holy Communion. There was before the pandemic hit, you'll recall the Pew study that showed the majority of Catholics no longer believe in the real presence. So that's no surprise that coincides with the decline in people understanding what it means to receive Holy Communion. Uh, Far from my observation anyway, it seems to me far too many Catholics think of it as somehow like table fellowship, um, which is a very Protestant understanding. But the Catholic understanding is it's a sacrament. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the sacrifice made present to us on the altar to receive that sacrament of communion is the the sacramental sort of incarnation expression of our internal interior communion with Christ in his sacrifice. We die within by dying to sin and professing. It's a profession that we believe what the church believes and live our lives accordingly. Uh, This is the timeless from the very beginning down to today teaching of the church, that someone who is in violation of that in a serious way is not properly disposed to receive Holy Communion. And that's why God gave us the wonderful blessing of that other sacrament, sacrament of penance, confessing our sins and receiving sacramental absolution puts us back in, in a state of grace. So I realized, I've realized for a very long time, far too too few Catholics understand that. Uh, We're still suffering from a decline in quality catechesis. I believe we're starting to make progress uh, and some improvement there. And the other thing is a lot of people don't understand how the evil of abortion and because the other side has been so uh, clever at deflecting attention away from what it really is. They know that they can't let people look directly at abortion and see what it is because so horrendously evil. So they have all these smoke screens of, you know, a, a woman's choice, reproductive health care, women's health, whatever, but anything, but to get people to look at what it really is. So I knew I had to begin first with the science, what are physically, biologically, what is happening when an abortion takes place. And then what the, the perspective of the law on that and, and how the church sees that. And then uh, to to speak about worthiness to receive communion and the responsibility of Catholics in public life gets into that question of moral cooperation. 
um, because someone might not be directly involved in an abortion, but they can they still might be a cooperator in some way or another. So I had to go through these are technical distinctions in moral theology, but it's important for Catholics to understand them. So I tried to make that section as sort of succinct and, and clear as possible with those distinctions about formal and material and so forth. And then the, the worthiness question of to receive holy communion and the special responsibility of Catholics in public life, I wanted it to, to be as inclusive as possible. I didn't speak exclusively of politicians because we have Catholics in many other walks of life who are in positions to have a big influence on society, you know, CEOs of, of major corporations in the, the business world, corporate world, uh, celebrities, you know, actors, athletes, and so forth. So all Catholics who are prominent in public life have a special responsibility to bear witness to a consistent ethic of life that upholds human dignity at every stage from the beginning to the end and in every condition in between. Something Archbishop that um, I wanted to ask you about is this, when, when we talk about prominent Catholics uh, in public life, whether they're politicians or, you know, people in sort of uh, entertainment culture or, or whatever else, you often get them speaking about what they believe. Um, you know, there was a there was an op-ed written by by Senator Kane from Virginia um, last week, for example, sort of presenting his understanding of the sacramental economy. Um, you, you get this from, I, I think, a lot of sort of celebrities, quote unquote, whether it's musicians or actors, things like that, always presenting sort of their version of Catholicism. And, and, and it strikes me that um, these are all sort of forms of teaching. I, I, I think teaching a very imperfect version of the faith, in some case, a flawed version of the faith, but it, it's teaching. And the reason I, I think it's so often considered to be a, a problem and a pressing concern is uh, people are, are listening to this and, and adopting it. Do you think that this points to sort of an underlying problem, which is there's a kind of crisis of uh, education and formation in the faith for your average adult in the pews? You know, are they equipped to discern not what Catholics believe, quote unquote, but what the church teaches? That may be the understatement of the century. <laughs> yes, Catholics are not well formed in the faith at all. And it's, yes, um, a poor catechesis. Uh, we're going on generations now, poor catechesis. But also, uh, a point I repeat often is that we don't teach only with words. I mean, we're, we're an incarnational church, a sacramental church. We understand one teaches more powerfully with symbols than with words. So how we worship is the most formative factor for Catholics. Catholics used to have just this instinct for the sacred, especially with regard to the Blessed Sacrament, and this, this internal sense of, of respecting what is sacred that uh, I no longer see that anymore, the way I observe people, say, behaving at Mass. But to give a, an example of what that used to be like, I, I'd like to give this as an example. I've done a number of times. When I was, those were the years I was working in the Signatura. I was home on vacation and celebrating mass in my home parish. And uh, the Knights of Columbus were having one of their famous pancake breakfasts that Sunday morning. Uh, the way the church was set up, I, uh, at the altar, I could see down on about halfway back on the left side was a side entrance. And what uh, used to be the baptistry, now they use as a reconciliation room. They also use it, that doubles up as a storage room. I noticed one of the knights came in and went in there 
and I was just approaching the consecration. Then he was, I saw him start to walk out. He had a stack of chairs in each arm and he saw he was at the consecration. He stopped and bowed his head and waited until I finished the consecration and then went forward. So I give that as an, it's anecdotal, but it's a very good example of how Catholics used to have this instinct yeah. for that respect for the blessed sacrament and that sense of the sacred. And I no longer see that very often anymore. Uh, so the how we worship is the most formative factor in, in shaping a Catholic soul. Then that's reinforced by the teaching with words. And Excellency, I think that's true. You know, the, I think, you know, as they say, lex orendi, lex credendi, lex vendi. One thing when we talk about this a lot is a lot of times when, when people talk about liturgy in those ways and the way in which liturgy is formative, there's a desire even in myself to sort of talk about a, a, a for, the foregone good old days, um, you know, the, the days past of, of, uh, of, of kings and heroes and now the, the sort of crisis. But in a certain way, there's no going back. There's, we, we live in the time that we live. What, how, do, how, how does the church sort of imbue that sense of the sacred in, um, in contemporary culture, sort of in response to, to, to contemporary culture? How do we make sure that we're not just sort of lionizing or, dare I say, fetishizing the past? I'm, and I'm not saying that of you. I'm just saying, how do we make sure we're sort of speaking to the, to the moment instead of a moment gone by? It's true. We, we can't erase history, and uh, we shouldn't overly idolize the past because um, there are problems there too. But I would say there's been, let me say, a sharp decline in beauty. Mm-hmm. We have the three yeah. transcendentals. Truth, as I mentioned, I, we're getting new, wonderful catechetical resources. I mean, the Gustin Institute is exemplary. Thank God for them and others as well. Uh, goodness, <laughs> nope. We might not get a lot of it, Attention paid to it, but the church leads the way in goodness with caring for the poor, caring for the sick, providing social services. Uh, the one area that seems to be have been neglected for a long time now is beauty. And I think beauty is the way to reclaim it. Uh, hold up what I think and what is classical within beauty is what is inspiring. So I think if we, if we can reclaim that sense of beauty and Classical, so compared to the secular realm uh, with classical music, right? People go to concerts to hear Beethoven and Mozart and Brahms. They're not passe. They're still beautiful, but they're also new compositions of classical music that are beautiful. And people go to concert halls to, to hear so I don't, we need to do the same thing with um, classical church music. Those classical compositions, they're still beautiful today as they were then, but also new compositions. We need, we need to promote new compositions in the classical vein. Hmm. So uh, as you may know, I, we're, we're working on this with my Benedict XVI Institute, and we have a composer in residence, Frank Lopaka, and this first composition was something, it was a twin tribute to Our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, the Immaculate Conception because that year we were celebrating, doing our Guadalupe celebration on December 8th. So I wanted it to uh, sort of a Marian unity mass. And I asked them to do sacred music, but incorporate, incorporate the um, sounds and even melodies of the, the popular songs 
that Mexican oh. people sing to honor Our Lady Guadalupe. They, oh, wow. The Guadalupana hymn uh-huh. is woven all throughout. Wow. So most of it's in Latin. Some parts are in Spanish. A couple parts are in English. Then he wrote an astoundingly beautiful communion meditation, which was the, the Hail Mary in Nahuatl, the language of the Aztec people. So wow. this was the language that our lady spoke to St. Juan Diego. in. Yeah. So when I was speaking about this with Frank and trying to help him understand my concept, I told him, what I want you to do is ex- was with the sense of sound through music, what the Franciscan missionaries did here with the sense of sight through church architecture. Mm. So think about a mission church. Okay, a mission church is, it's a new style of church architecture, but it's not completely different. It's clearly a traditional Catholic church, but it also reflects the local culture in the, obviously the materials that are used, Adobe and building the churches, but also the colors, then the art that developed around that. It all, so it has a feel of the local culture, but it's in the classical vein. So it has a timeless beauty to it as well. So much so that it's one of the most popular styles of architecture in the Southwest. A lot of secular buildings use Mm -hmm. mission church architecture. So uh, this is how we continue uh, to hold up beauty. It's not just what has been composed in the past is beautiful and needs to still be used for what it was composed for worship, not confined to concert halls, but there's room too for new compositions that are are reflective of the time we're living in, but not bound by the time that we're living in because they have a classical beauty to them that will last beyond this generation. I, I hear what you're saying, Archbishop, and I, I totally get it that um, sort of the the senses, beauty, um, music, architecture, art, these sorts of things um, are, are powerful at conveying power and, and in a sense meaning, but it seems to me that there's also... Um, I don't want to say a limit, but there's a necessary um, partnership that needs to go along with it for intellectual content that, you know, you can, you can give someone a sense of the sacred through architecture, through music, through mimetic behavior, like you said, you know, how to behave in front of the tabernacle, things like that. But at some point people need the intellectual content. Uh, one of the things I was struck by was uh, the other week when Pope Francis sort of universalized the, the role of catechist which is something that's always been tied to, you know, the work of a particular missionary. Um, it now seems to be open for everywhere in the church to use and adapt in a different way. Do you see there being, you know, you said uh, calling it an educational crisis in the adult faithful is the understatement of the century. Um, does, does that require a sort of new, if you like, um, order of preachers, almost a new order of educators in the, in the diocese who can impart what's missing? What we need to do is better formation of Educators. Now that Pope Francis has instituted the ministry of catechists, I hope this will launch an effort for more serious formation of our catechists, that it will be parallel to what we do for priests and for deacons. You know, deacons go through, they have jobs, most of them have families, they go through a long and insofar as it can be accommodated schedule in-depth formation to become deacons. Uh, we need something similar for, for catechists. So I hope it will launch that. I think uh, what I think beauty does, it helps prepare the soil for the seeds of truth. It opens the mind, it softens the heart to the truth of Christ. And so we definitely need both. I mean, one alone won't work. We need beauty and uh, beautiful wor- and reverent worship, and we need good, sound, solid catechesis 
And we need the witness with the church putting faith into action, serving the poor. But I think uh, beauty is something that you can't argue with. There are people who walk through the door of truth. You know, they read themselves into the church. Those people have more open minds, but, uh, and maybe they have greater intellectual depth, but um, not everyone's going to go through the door of truth. Some could go through the door of beauty, others through the door of goodness. But I think beauty helps prepare the soil for a good, solid catechesis. Excellency, we're not going to ask you on the record to talk about whether you really think deacons know anything about anything, but let's talk about others who have had some good formation, or ostensibly at least, because I, I want to kind of transition to talking about um, going back to your letter and then talking about its context and its place in the conversation among American bishops right now. So, you know, leading up to the meeting, in June, there has been some expectation that bishops are going to talk about this thing, which you guys have begun euphemistically calling Eucharistic coherence. And um, and there has been, you know, some some debate. So you and uh, Archbishop Quillo, for example, have offered a, a perspective that says that those who, uh, you know, are um, who support pro-abortion policies, the expansion of abortion protection should not uh, receive Holy Communion or should not be admitted to Holy Communion. And then there are bishops like Bishop McElroy of your home diocese of, of San Diego, who have published an essay in America, offering another perspective, saying that that kind of thing can be exclusionary or can weaponize the Eucharist. And all of that has, um, all of that debate was kind of a prelude to a letter um, from Cardinal Ladaria, the prefect of the CDF, to the U.S. bishops that said that you guys should be um, approaching this in a manner of discernment and um, trying to find consensus and unity through prayer and these kinds of things. How, how do you, uh, how do you read that? What, what do you think uh, Cardinal Ladaria was kind of aiming at? Uh, I'm not sure why he had to issue this letter. We have been, he speaks about how bishops have to dialogue among themselves about it. Uh, he's certainly concerned about unity uh, but we have been dialoguing about this among ourselves for easily 20 years, maybe longer. So I think I think we fulfilled that that advice of his. He also speaks about coming to a consensus if we're going to form a, a national policy. But no one's talking about a national policy um, to which all bishops would be bound. We're talking about a a document that will be doctrinally rich and uh, a resource for bishops in discerning how to apply church teaching and discipline in their own diocese. It will certainly respect the decision of each bishop to do that uh, in his own diocese. I think the letter, I don't know why it was issued, but I think it's properly nuanced and uh, certainly is something that would support us moving forward. Uh, he does reference at the beginning of the letter, in fact, the uh, letter that Cardinal Rossinger wrote to the U.S. bishops way back in 2004. And he says that to use those principles uh, in guiding our own document. And uh, well, he says quite clearly, Cardinal Rossinger in that letter that um, for Catholics prominent in public life, he mentions, first of all, he mentions specifically abortion and euthanasia, that uh, advocating those evils is constitutes formal cooperation. Uh, and then he says the conversations have to take place. And if they prove fruitless, then the bishop is to declare the person uh, is not to be admitted to communion. So we're working on this Eucharistic coherence document. That term actually we get from the Aparacita document uh, from the Latin American bishops, where they speak about the need for uh, Catholic politicians to respect 
the dignity of human life on these issues of abortion and others. And they, it uses that term, Eucharistic coherence. And uh, as we know, one of the main authors of that was the Cardinal uh, Archbishop Buenos Aires at the time, Jorge Bergoglio. It's something that always strikes me about the, you know, you mentioned that U.S. bishops have been debating these issues for nigh on 20 years. And, and I think that's probably true. I, I can certainly remember reading about it for at least that long. Um, but something that I, I always find strange in the presentation of this, even um, when bishops are either speaking amongst themselves or sort of writing past each other almost, it feels like sometimes either in um, pastoral letters or in essays and magazines and things, is the, the concept of Eucharistic coherence um, and worthiness for reception is usually um, sort of phrased in a disciplinary sense, that this is a question of um, punishment, that, you know, the Eucharist is withheld from sort of errant Catholics. Uh, and, and that hasn't been my understanding of it. And what I um, what I rarely hear bishops talking about, and I feel would be perhaps a more interesting way to frame it is, you know, the, it seems to me that the call in canons, for example, 915 or 916, is not so much about punishment. It's about um, preventing harm, that there's a spiritual consequence to the reception of the Eucharist in certain states. And, and we hear a lot about sort of withholding the Eucharist as punishment, but not so much as sort of, you know, taking a hand, a child's hand away from a burning stove, if that makes sense. Why do you, why do you think it gets phrased the way it does so often? I think people misunderstand the difference between declaring that a certain individual is not to be admitted to communion with a canonical sanction. It's not, a, it's not part of penal law. This canon 15 is in the section of the code, the book, book four that has to do with the sanctifying office of the church. It's not in book six that has to do with penal law. So a punishment would be excommunication. Uh, but it's what we call a medicinal penalty because it looks to the conversion of the erring Catholic. And then excommunication, so it has all a canonical procedure that has to be followed for it to be validly inflicted. And uh, it applies until the person then repents. And that excommunication is a deprivation of all rights, privileges, titles, honors, jurisdictions uh, in the church. Whereas Canon 915 is simply a declaration of a fact that this person is cooperating with a, uh, in a is in a situation of, of manifest grave sin, persistently so, and uh, it's causing scandal and therefore not to be admitted to communion. So it's more, it's, uh, it's not a penalty. It's, uh, it's an, a pastoral intervention for the sake of the conversion of the erring Catholic and to repair the scandal that's being caused. Excellency, I just want to follow up on Ed's question this way and, and your point, too. You said you the bishops have been debating this for 20 years, and uh, and that's true. And I guess, you know, the, the sort of famous aspect of that debate was the 2004 kind of June meeting in Denver and all this. And um, But you, you have said in recent weeks, or at least intimated, that you have begun the kind of dialogue that precedes the application of Canon 915 with, with um, pro-abortion politicians in your own diocese, that you perceive that to be your responsibility. And, and I don't know that I need to sort of ask you for the details of that, nor that you would give them, because it seems like the kind of pastoral conversations, at least that are not sort of a, pub, a public thing. But what I do wonder is why do, why, why do the bishops need to debate this? Why do the bishops need to say something about this at all, um, in, rather than bishops just exercise you know their own kind of munis regendi on the question. It's a very delicate matter. And yes, these conversations do take place. They take place in private 
very often people don't realize, and I mean, understandably so, because they're private conversations. But um, there are a lot of factors that have to be taken into consideration. What with the church of bishops, the church, we're always looking for the salvation of souls. So what will move the person down the path of conversion and what can be done to uh, repair or minimize or prevent scandal? So those two things, conversion and, and scandal. So we wouldn't want to do anything that might uh, might embolden the other side, might uh, further entrench the person, uh, might create such a reaction as to make the diocese ungovernable uh, with questions about the, the unity factor. Will it disrupt unity? Uh, there are a lot of, a lot of factors that have to be taken into consideration. And it, to me, uh, this document on Eucharistic coherence would be very helpful if it provides guidance for bishops such that um, a bishop feels uh, with this as a resource, a support, if he does make a decision to apply Canon 915. And it reemphasizes that as bishops, you know, we need to, we need to respect each other in making that decision, whether or not to apply it. Each bishop has to make that decision within the sanctuary of his conscience, right? It can't be a politically motivated decision. It can't be a decision for any ulterior motive, only in conformity with his conscience, because we all have to remember that when we leave this world, when we have to render an account for uh, the responsibility God has entrusted to us, we're not going to be accountable to our brother bishops. We're not going to be accountable to politicians. We're not going to be accountable with due reverence to Catholic media. We're going to be accountable only to Almighty God. And each bishop has to make that decision in his conscience, standing in his conscience before Almighty God. And we need to respect each other in that. Everything J.D. said about um, bishops having the, the necessity of having private pastoral conversations with individuals and that being a necessarily private thing, almost to the point of being you know, sort of the, the form of spiritual direction and things like that. I, I totally agree. But I feel like we've been tiptoeing around sort of the elephant in the room. And, uh, you know, when we're dealing with figures in the public eye where the facts of the case are so well known and so specifically known, and we're talking about public scandal and issues of um, worthiness of reception. I, I feel I just have to ask you, since you are the Archbishop of San Francisco, does Barry Bonds belong in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> um, that's, uh, I haven't studied that in depth, really. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wise but, uh, answer. You put me on, congratulations, you put me on the spot. <laughs> well, we're going to put you on the spot again in, in a minute. But let me ask you this, that's a, a related question that's a little bit more serious. You're right about the, the private nature of those conversations and all of those things. At some point with a, with a genuine issue of scandal as it relates to Canon 915, it does seem likely or at least possible that there would be cases where there would be a private dialogue, a decision made, and then for the sake of sort of repairing scandal, uh, some public attestation to that. Is that is that right? I mean, is it, do the people of God sort of have the right to think that for the sake of repairing scandal, they would know about the situation of pro-choice politicians if the bishop does, you know, sort of apply the norms of Canon 915? Or is that in itself what a lot of people say kind of a private matter in your view? I'm thinking of an example going back to, was it 2005, I believe, when Pope Benedict visited the United States, mm -hmm. they had a mass in Washington with the bishops, they had a mass in New York. No, I, think, I believe it was a mass in Washington. 
um, at the, uh, the stadium there. At any rate, Rudy Giuliani received communion and it created a lot of scandal. Well, then we found out later that Cardinal Legan had had these conversations with him. Hmm. And Giuliani agreed not to receive communion. At Mass, he went up for communion, I guess, to get communion from the Pope. So if the, if the Catholic public figure agrees not to receive communion and not to advertise themselves as a devout Catholic, that helps to repair the scandal. So the bishop doesn't have to go to the next step of publicly declaring that they should not be admitted to communion. So they're, they're different. So there are kind of different levels here, right? The first is Canon 916. That puts mm-hmm. the burden of responsibility on the shoulders of the individual who's in a state of, man, of persistent grave sin. They should not present themselves to communion. Canon 915 is if they're in a manifest state of persistent grave sin, they're not to be admitted to communion. But in between in these conversations, as if, if the person agrees not to, re- to refrain from receiving and not, you know, purport themselves as being a devout, faithful Catholic. So then the, the scandal is, is prevented without having to go to that next step of Canon 915. Then, then beyond that would be this question of excommunication. That would be in the most extreme situation. But even that, just just to clarify something that I think often doesn't get into the conversation, that agreement, let's say a pro-choice politician or politician who supports some other issue that's not, you know, inconsistent with the teachings of the church, that agreement not to receive Holy Communion, I mean, that's not going to save your soul at the end of the day, right? I mean, that seems to be to be focused on not sort of compounding sin or not... Um, not, you know, not, um, not committing new sins or not committing scandal. But the goal when someone says, I'm not going to receive Holy Communion is to move them from there into, I'm not going to put to be in a situation in which I'm unable to receive Holy Communion, right? I mean, the goal is for that to be a way station on the path to conversion. Yeah? There are two, well, the two considerations. So that, that solution satisfies the concern for scandal. You're right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't satisfy the concern for the person's own salvation. So that there still has to be work done there. Yeah. But this is a sort of step along the way, at least to some, you know. It could be, yes. Hopefully it would be, yes. So Archbishop, talking about the sort of debate that and discussion that the bishops are supposed to have about the subject of Eucharistic coherence and um, this letter from Cardinal Ladaria, um, we now know that there's, you know, there's been this letter that was sent to Archbishop Gomez as president of the USCCB that's been signed by a number of other bishops. I think around 70, it seems like, have signed it, um, basically calling for the topic of Eucharistic coherence to be taken off the agenda for the June meeting and for everything to sort of um, proceed regionally to eventually then maybe be taken up again in Baltimore in November. Uh, and, and citing Cardinal Ladaria's letter as sort of a justification for this. What, what do you make of that? I cannot tell you how aggrieved this makes me feel. I've been a bishop almost 20 years now. I was still, I recall this well, I was still a relatively new bishop. I was visiting a priest friend of mine in Germany. Uh, we were seminary classmates and have remained friends in Rome and have remained friends over the years. And I still remember this conversation. He told me how, this is back then in Germany, uh, how bishops would publicly criticize each other and, and even through the media. I remember feeling scandalized by that and feeling grateful that thinking, yeah, in the U.S. we have our differences, but bishops are respectful toward each other. We never criticize each other publicly and uh, we wouldn't do anything publicly that might create more division in the church. And so I'm really alarmed 
at this move. We are, we are following our conference procedures. I'm very bothered that the administrative committee voted overwhelmingly to put this on the agenda for the June meeting. And then we find out that Cardinal Supic and Cardinal Tobin are in Rome. Then shortly after that comes this letter from Cardinal Ladaria that's being spun as if it's, he's telling us to not go forward with this. When, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's a properly, I don't understand why we need it, but it's a properly nuanced letter, which certainly could support us going forward. So there's this interference with the procedures of the conference. And I, I know Archbishop Gomez is committed to following the procedures as we agreed on them. I, I think this is totally unacceptable. I, I know they say they have 70 bishops who signed, but uh, many of those bishops are auxiliaries in the diocese of the main protagonists of this letter. Uh, I know two bishops, and I've heard there are others, who agreed to sign it and then later realized exactly what this was about and are upset and with, have withdrawn support. I know other bishops who were heavily pressured to sign it, but didn't. So I think the number is artificially inflated, for one thing. The argument from the Ladaria letter is, is baseless. The other argument is that uh, it's, it's a delicate matter and the discussion needs to be held in person. It can't be done adequately virtually. Let us be clear, in the June meeting, what's on the agenda is voting whether or not to write an issue, a letter on Eucharistic coherence. We are not debating the document itself. Uh, again, this was voted overwhelmingly by the administrative committee to be put on the agenda. In November, we will hopefully, the document will be ready by then. I, the doctrine committee I know is committed to having it ready in November. We'll go through the usual modification and amendment process. All bishops go in on it and the document itself will be debated and voted on. And that will be in all likelihood, it will be an in-person meeting. So I'm very, I'm very disturbed by this action. And I believe many of the bishops who signed on to this letter were well-intentioned, but uh, I think Whoever was promoting this action or seemed clear to me they didn't get their way. So they're taking these alternative means to interfere with the procedures of the conference. That's why we have these procedures. It kind of takes some time. It's a bit cumbersome, but it's in order to be fair to everyone so everyone can have a voice. If they don't like the idea of a Eucharistic coherence document, let them voice against it in June and let, let them... Let the procedures of the conference go forward and so everyone can have a voice and it can be fair and objective. This, this is very worrisome to me in terms of the division it's going to create in the church. Wasn't the criticism of, the, of, of Archbishop Gomez in January a perception that he didn't observe the bylaws of the conference with regard to the Biden statement? Now, I went and looked at the bylaws of the conference and I didn't see an inconsistency between what I understood to have happened in those bylaws, but hasn't hasn't there been a criticism by the by some of those who are sort of pressuring the Archbishop to take this off the agenda that he's not you know that that he hasn't followed the rules in the past? Uh, yes, exactly. This is the other thing that bothers me. Some of the supporters of this letter telling asking Archbishop Gomez to stop this 
they're interfering with the procedures. They're the same ones who falsely accused him of not observing the procedure. You're correct. He did not violate the procedures. He did exactly what he said he would do. He, he consulted and he was advised to form this working group to give him some recommendations on how to interact with the new administration. The working group did its job and then it sunsetted. And uh, one recommendation was that he issue a letter on the day of the inauguration. And then the other recommendation is to um, ask the doctrine committee to work on this Eucharistic coherence document. So he consulted, he did what the, 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 um, the advice that he got, he, he followed it. Now the bylaws do say that if the president is going to issue a letter in his own name, that if it recommends that if possible, he consult the administrative committee, but it doesn't require him to do so. And it wasn't possible for him to do so in that time frame, And it wasn't really necessary because he already gone through uh, an extensive consultation process. So this is also very, very, very troubling to me. Uh, again, I see bishops criticizing other bishops in public when there's no base to it. He did not violate procedures. And now they're trying to violate the procedures. What do you think is important for Catholics to understand as all this kind of unfolds? Well, sadly, it's manifesting divisions that have been around for a while. And uh, again, we bishops, we knew the divisions were there, but we used to be more respectful to each other. So it always held out the possibility that we could find some common ground where we disagreed. But now that these kind of public actions are being taken that are very aggressive, the divisions are, are, are festering more and now beginning to, to manifest themselves with greater visibility and, and aggression. So I would ask all Catholics to reclaim the fullness of our Catholic faith. I mean, what this Eucharistic coherence document is about, it's, it's, it's not singling out any one issue either. There are a number of very grave issues we have to deal with. But if we think about the abortion issue, which the bishops have agreed is the preeminent issue, a vast majority agree it's the preeminent issue. And then when we come with Eucharistic coherence, what this is about is protecting babies and the Blessed Sacrament. What Catholic can be opposed to that? You talk about there being divisions um, among the bishops and, and something that I remember happening um, in 2018, shortly following the McCarrick scandal and everything. And there was this proposal to, by the USCCB to, to pass, um, you know, some new, some new structures and, and everything in response to that. And, and Rome sort of said, no, we want to see a pause on that because Rome wants to have the final word. And that led to the development of Vosestes Lux Mundi and everything. But one thing that the Pope did say to the U.S. bishops was to advise them to go away on retreat together, which, which you all did, I think, at Mundelein Seminary. Um, and and I, I remember the bishops uh, coming out of that and speaking very warmly of the experience. The bishops have a regular meeting at the USCCB twice a year to meet for sort of to talk business. Do you think there needs to be added to sort of the annual calendar of, of the bishops of the United States, something that's a little more spiritual and fraternally organized like, like that retreat? Or if not added because your schedules, maybe the spring meeting kind of transformed or something like that. I mean, is there a need for more of that? fraternal prayer? 
Yes, there is. And we are uh, going to implement that. Uh, we've discussed that and we're going to make more time for prayer at the spring meeting, uh, potentially also at the November meeting. I would like to see us have a day of prayer before that actual business part of the meeting begins. I think that'd be very beneficial. I've sometimes thought, Archbishop, um, and I, I don't know how much time you have, so we'll stop asking you questions, but I've sometimes thought, and it's sort of, um, it's, it's working against purposes because I'm a journalist and I work in the church, but I've sometimes thought that um, the, the presence of cameras and journalists inside the meeting of the conference is preventative of, uh, of sort of authentic dialogue. I don't know what the answer to that is, because I do think some transparency is good. I think it's important for bishops to put their names and their opinions. At the same time, it seems to me like there's a lot of concern sometimes about how things are might be perceived. And so bishops don't speak out or issues aren't really hammered out, maybe except an executive session. What, what do you think would just improve the quality of sort of the debate? That does add a, a factor. Bishops are going to be anyone, you know, if your public's, if your remarks are going to be nationally televised, you're going to be more careful in what you say. Yeah. Um, and, um, I don't know, maybe that's good, <laughs> but uh, I think there's a place for both uh, I, um, people. I mean, that's just human nature behind closed doors. People are going to speak differently. Um, it doesn't mean that in public they're not saying what they believe or what they think, but sometimes in private conversation, one can say something that's more, say, un, a nuance. Uh, more a little sharper edged, knowing that they're not going to be misinterpreted or or judged in a certain way because there's the people who know each other and will know the context in which to take those comments. So I do think there's room for both. Okay, well, Archbishop, now we're going to put you on the spot again more. When people come on our podcast, we make them play a game. And uh, because you are a California guy through and through, uh, we are going to have a little California game for you. And we like to play a game. Uh, uh, Ed, I don't even know what we call this game, actually. What, what do we... we call it greater or lesser? Ed, why don't you tell them how it's played? Um, so what we're going to do, Archbishop, is we're going to give you um, lists of three things, three nouns, basically. And, and you have to rank them. Uh, either in ascending or descending order. And the reason we call it greater or lesser is you have to say either X is greater than Y is greater than Z or X is lesser than Y is lesser than... And the idea of giving you the option of greater or lesser is that way you're not obliged to be endorsing anything if you don't approve of all three. You can say, well, they're all bad, but this is worse this than is this. The worst is the worst, yeah. So we, we worked on a California list for you. And, uh, and so Ed's going to give you this California list for Archbishop Cordelioni, greater or lesser. We'll, we'll start with something simple. Um, the beach, the bay, and the mountains. Ah, uh, that's, a, that's a tough one. Oh, oh here, really here we go. Comes next <laughs> if this is a hard one. Because, <laughs> you know, I grew up in Southern California, and we have both nearby. I mean, it's famous for, they say that in some places in Southern California, you can go skiing in the morning and surfing in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. But I would say... Um, Beach is greater than mountains. Mountains are greater than the bay. Wow. Wow. Go. Okay. Well, I got the I got the fishing lineage. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Fair enough. Um, okay. Uh, well, we're going to go with some some local baseball teams for you. Uh, Padres, Giants, and the A's. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> if no intention of yeah, being fair. Right. Yeah, we did the fair part. Now we're playing a game. <laughs> Um, 
Well, first of all, it's a toss-up between Giants and Padres, not only because I'm attached to both cities, but also because I'm a total believer in the National League because ah. I don't like the designated hitter rule. Ah. Oh, oh you've, just, you've immediately won the, yeah, won the yeah, game. That's, that's that the only way you can win is to have good opinions about baseball. The theology of the designated of the, of why you need to oppose the designated hitter rule is something I can go on about for a long time. It's true. Don't let him. Um, okay. Well, some, some local, some local bands for you. Uh, the Grateful Dead, Iron Butterfly and MC Hammer. Um, I've never been a fan of rock music, but I do. I did kind of like Iron Butterfly when I was growing up. So I'd say they're greater than Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead is greater than MC Hammer. And you know, Iron Butterfly are from your hometown of San Diego. Oh, I didn't even so, know. That. Yeah. So that. So what we're do? If you haven't, if there's a theme here, and we're giving you one from each of your places. And so uh, MC Hammer is from Oakland, and the Dead, of course, I presume have a key to the city of San Francisco by now. Yeah. So that, of course, yes. I knew that. I, that one I knew. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the Chargers, the 49ers, and the Las Vegas Raiders. You've touched a deep wound in my. <laughs> <laughs> so i have to say now 49ers uh ooh, well i guess of course growing up a chargers fan and then the raiders that's that's one thing i couldn't move myself to and was <laughs> uh, but i'd say 49ers are greater than the i don't know that's another toss-up for second place all right my- there you go kind of sort of fries Fenton's ice cream and sourdough. <laughs> you say carne asada fries. Yeah, we 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 learned in our ten minutes of researching about the, your native city of San Diego that those are one of the foods that San Diego is most well known for. So it, perhaps that's not even so. I mean, honestly, we did. I, practically well, no believe it or not, I've person. never had carne asada fries. And it's also known for the fish taco. Fish sure, that's true. Diego. That's true. Yeah. But um, let's see. Well, now I would say sourdough is better than carne asada fries is better than Fenton's ice cream. Mm-hmm. Well, well done. Okay. Um, fictional police officers from your archdiocese, Dirty Harry, Bullet, and Ironside. Ironside is better than Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry is better than Bullet. Bam. That was some decisive. Wow. That was a decisive <laughs> answer there. Wow. I, I would not have picked that one as the one you just didn't know, even have right. to think about. That, no. is that, <laughs> that is that legendary Corleone decisiveness right there. Just like, bam, this is how it is. Okay. And films set in your archdiocese. Uh, you have The Rock, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Vertigo. Vertigo is better than Mrs. Doubtfire. Mrs. Doubtfire is better than The Rock. That's the correct answer. Well done. <laughs> well, the Rock is derivative I, out of every other Alcatraz movie and kind of, you know, just John Connery doing stuff. Listen to the Archbishop. I understand, but given that we were discussing earlier the importance of imagery and beauty, I, I would have thought the cinematography, I mean, the, the Ferrari and versus Humvee chase scene through the hills I mean, this is a, a modern-day reinterpretation of the bullet scene with the muscle cars, but the whole point is it was it was 90s technicolor, you know, silly, over-the-top. It was a moment this in time. This is what happens, I, Ed, I would, Excellency, is Ed both asks and answers the question. It's really I'm going amazing. With what, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. going with what most resonates with my childhood. Yeah, you gotta, there you go. you got to go with your gut. 
Got to go with your gut. Uh, well, that's all I have. Thank you for playing. Well, and Excellency, thank you for talking with us today. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to uh, to say hello to my pal, Father Michael Hurley, and his mom, both of whom uh, probably, uh, probably, you know, I'm, I'm sure Father Michael's a big pain for you from time to time, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to say hello to them. Oh, no, he's show. a great neighbor. I'm really yeah. happy having him next door to St. Dominic's. They're Good. And yeah. I don't know if you know this, but his mom's, a, the cathedral. his mom's a real life saint. I don't know if you know that, but his mom's a real life saint. Praise God. <laughs> All right, everybody, you have been listening to The Pillar Podcast, a production of Pillar Media, an Ed and JD project. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn. I've been joined by my podcasting partner, The Pillar's Ed Condon, and this hour, we've been joined by Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, the Archbishop of San Francisco, California. We'll see you later, everybody. God bless. Peace.